Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello Slackers, I hope you are all good, I hope your podcast needs are being met at the moment and that the first tan of spring is coming onto your skin, I mean I'm as white as a ghost, I went to Croatia for a couple of weeks last year and didn't tan at all, didn't even burn the sun sees me as like a major insignificance and just manages to beam itself around me yeah well if you're like brand new to the Slacker podcast, uh, yeah I don't talk about my suntan for, for an hour, as interesting as that would be and do you know what, I've heard worse podcasts out there this is a podcast where we get the amazing people in music from all around the world to sit down and chat to me for an hour and uh, we get their early demos on normally we get something from like back when they were a little bit rubbish before they were the incredible artist the seminal album making uh person that they that is before you now it's it's good to get back to that stage and especially if you've made music at some point or making music you know what it's like when you're starting out in a project and you can learn a lot about where uh, an artist comes from from those demos as well also sometimes when you play them uh their early tracks they like to you can see them sort of close their eyes and uh kind of almost morph themselves back back to the future style into that like shitty real rehearsal room or that awful little studio that they paid like 20 pound in um so it's always a pleasure and a privilege to chat to great musicians so just before we get started 
I want to tell you a little bit about this book that I've written. It's called The Slacker's Guide to the Music Industry. If you've been listening the whole way through the series, you'll have heard me wanging on about it over and over and over again. But guess what? It comes out in two weeks. It comes out on May the 16th and I'm super excited. This week as I record this, it's a Tuesday when I'm recording this, I will be at Music Cork which is an industry event which is happening in the south of Ireland um, on Wednesday and Thursday. And then um, the good people at Live at Leeds and the Unconference at Live at Leeds have asked me to take the book up there and do a keynote, which will be the, the first ever keynote uh, that I've done. I'm going to have to stand up in front of a couple of hundred people and not shit myself, <laughs> basically. I think that's the plan for that. Um, but I will be taking books with me to the, the Cork event and the Leeds event. And, uh, of course, I will be at the Great Escape. I've moved to Brighton. I could How could I not go to the Great Escape? Um, I will be doing a Help Musicians panel on the Thursday, one on the Friday, one on the Saturday. And I'll be selling books down there as well. If you are interested in making music or the industry at all, it's not boring. It's not one of these, like, and this is what you do then, and this is what you do then. I did loads of interviews with really interesting artists like Wolf Alice and Run the Jewels and Frank Turner, and yeah, this goes on and on and on. So even if you don't make music and you know someone who does buy it for them as a present, easy. www.philtigertslacker.com And I have just put my first my first range of t-shirts I sound like Versace, Donatella Versace up here. Yeah, it's my first range of t-shirts have gone online. But yeah, we've got uh, the book up there. We've got an e-book up there. We've got a t-shirt up there. I mean, if I keep going the way I'm going, in about a year's time, I'll have started my own Amazon. Take that, Jeff Bezos. How about that? And it's all right, guys. I'll cut you all in on the shares. Right, enough rambling from me. This week's podcast is with the one and only Glenn Hansard. You may know him from being Glenn Hansard. You may know him from uh, the lead singer of The Frames, the writer from The Frames. Uh, you may know him from the movie Once. You may know him from The Commitments. Uh, or you may know him from busking around Dublin in his early days. He still does it. He still does it. Um, he was so ridiculously interesting. Like I, I, we could have talked for hours and hours and hours, and there's bits and pieces that we've <laughs> had had to clip out. We we get very honest in it. I really enjoyed doing this podcast. I think Glenn Hanser's brilliant, and he's uh, got an album that just came out a couple of weeks ago as well. So it was great to sit down and chat to Glenn Hansard for the Slacker podcast. Here it is in three, in two, in one. Glenn Hansard, hello. How are you? Not too bad. How's things? How's things going today? What are you up to? Uh, really good. I just got into London last night. I've been on a, a bit of a sort of a press trip around Europe. And uh, funnily, I, I left my guitar at home uh, by accident. I just completely forgot it when I left the house. And so it's been an interesting, adventurous few days of me picking up guitars from <laughs> friends and borrowing. I, I, in Paris, I, I met a street musician. And uh, 11 o'clock in the morning, he was out singing uh, Charles Aznavour's La Boheme. <laughs> and I went to him and I said, I said, listen, I'm a street musician also. Is there any chance I could, I, I have this radio session and I left without my guitar. Is there any chance I could borrow your guitar for the afternoon? And <laughs> he looked at me and, and uh, he said, okay, uh, okay, okay. 
and he handed me the guitar and it was so I just thought he didn't, want, he didn't want money for it he well, didn't, he didn't actually fo- and follow I, you about it no I volunteered of course I volunteered money uh, I gave him 50 quid and I thought you know after he had given me the instrument I gave him 50 quid and I said that's for your time and he said well thank you very much he said I'll be here in this bar this evening because you know he liked the bar yeah yeah, uh, yeah. and he said maybe come back if you can around 7, 7.30 and I went back later on and I'd already broke a string on his guitar so I, <laughs> I put some more money in the box for strings but a very generous man and I thought you know it's good to know that we still live in a world where that's you, crazy. you can just speak to people and they'll get it. That, that sounds like something that would have happened in like the 70s, 60s or something <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like yeah. 2019 feels like a, a more of a, a time when everybody's kind of looking out for themselves in this big bad world. You, you know? know what you're absolutely right the, 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 the sort of level of compassion and empathy have kind of plummeted but I have to say that, and if, if living well is, you know, if living by example is the way to go, it, this was a this was a moment that I really, really admired, and I have to say that that guy embodied all of the things that I love about <laughs> well, musicians and about 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 the world that we live in. That's that's incredible. Like, mm-hmm. I, if somebody had come up to you um, a couple of years ago when you were out busking and asked for your guitar, what would you have told them? I have to say it would be a complicated <laughs> question. I, I would really. It's a moral dilemma, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because your guitar is, you know, your guitar is your tool. It's also it's also one of your best friends. It's the thing you enter. You enter that strange place with the, you know, you, 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 you when you dip, when you dip into the dark, when you go behind the hedges of your own, you know, uh, creativity. That's the instrument that goes with you. So it's it's a very personal thing. My friend has a, a like I played in bands with him since he was uh, we were no age, and mm. he's still playing the same acoustic guitar that he was playing when he was fourteen. Mm. I think his parents like shelled out and got him a Takamine. Nice, and uh, it's got about four holes in it now, and it just looks like it's ready for the dump. Yeah, do you know? I know. Exactly but you've what got I mean. you've got a guitar called the horse, is it? I have a horse, and uh, we call it's called the horse just because it's a workhorse. Workhorse, and, yeah, and, uh, and it's similar to your friends it's got mm. all these holes and I think it has something to do with what Takamine did with the wood They there was a certain model the natural they call it the natural the EN the natural uh, model and the wood is not treated so plectrums just eat into that wood really uh-huh. quickly and I've seen a load of them and I'd love to make a collection of photographs of all the <laughs> Takamines that I know of friends who work in bars and who just kind of yeah. work in musicians you know because those guitars are uh they're incredible and they really they begin to look really old very they're, quick they're fairly robust they are they're great workhorse I'm going to play a, a track now at the start of every Slacker podcast for anybody who's just tuning in specifically for you and hasn't uh, listened to this before we uh, open up with an early demo as early as I could, could find I found a session um, that you did for Dave Fanning on RTE yeah um, and the track was called Martha and I loved it absolutely loved it uh, but then I just sort of got into this again another moral quandary m- yeah. m- more maybe a legal quandary was like I don't want RT to sue me so no, no <laughs> I, I've decided they won't, they won't know <laughs> <laughs> I, well yeah I work for the BBC as well it would be like, <laughs> a, like you know it'd be a double scalp for them um, so I, I've decided to play a track from the, the first Frames album which yeah. I think came out in 1990 was it 1991 I think 91 yeah. uh, and the track is called The Dancer
after listening to that, what's the first thing that goes through your head? Well, I was thinking about that boy who wrote that song, and I'm listening to it there, and I'm thinking about all of those influences, that mash of, you know, maybe nine months before I made that record, I remember being on acid with my best friend, and we had gone into uh, HMV on Grafton Street at like nine in the morning, because we'd been up all night walking <laughs> the streets, and I bought the Pixie Surferosa on tape and we had both had our Walkmans with us and we decided it would be an amazing idea if we both bought a tape and went up onto the top of a car park and just sat above Dublin and listened to the tape yeah so he bought the Wonder Stuff Hup which had just come out at the time uh-huh. and I bought the Pixie Surferosa I bought it for the cover I didn't even know anything about the band <laughs> that's, um, good, that's, that's good luck that one yeah and I remember going yeah it was it was a great great fortunate moment and I went I went up on the roof and we and I just heard no 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 you're the bone machine <laughs> and I was like maybe it was the drugs but I was just like wow this had blown me right open but right previous to that in a, and in a kind of a funny sort of a way it affected my first album in, in quite a negative way I, f- I feel now yeah it, without without any judgment on that but I just I had kind of discovered this wild energy of this but band the, 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 that's the thing it's weird you use the word energy because that's the first thing that came into my head when I heard it I was just like the, the, the rhythm of the guitar is just pure energy and the, and you're kind of yipping and yelping yeah you know? and so it's, to, to sort of conclude what I was just saying actually it's it's for, what I hear in that is I hear I hear all that Waterboys influence I hear all that busking influence you know the guitar going <laughs> you know because when you're busking you're constantly just lamming into the guitar you know and what I also hear and I'm listening to the accent I'm singing in which is really strange for me because it's sort of a strange kind of accent I'm sorry you can hear this weird <laughs> she was in a class and I know where that's coming from now and it's hit me for the first time that I just had gotten into REM yeah yeah and, and Stipe had that kind of strong southern uh, Georgian accent in his singing and it's f- I'm, I'm just listening to it now and it's so naked for me to I can deconstruct it so easily just uh-huh. listening to it there uh, but where at the time I felt like I was you know expressing my own voice and this was my own song but actually it's just a it's a wonderful melge of everything that was happening in my life at the time and also the dancer was my, my girlfriend at the time Siobhan Wilmot who was a, an amazing uh, dancer and um, and we met I was like 18 and she was 17 and I remember it was such a powerful moment in my mm. life it was like pro- proper furtive love isn't it amazing I, I was busking and she uh I remember she was standing in the crowd watching us busk and I was like, wow, I felt head over heels. And afterwards we... Uh, did she give you, did she give you a, uh, not even a euro, a punt? Did she give you a punt? She didn't. No, <laughs> she didn't have one. But afterwards uh, we sat in a cafe and we and, and, and she was there and she, I remember she, she kind of slapped me on the shoulder as she was leaving and she said, is, is that your Vespa? Because I, I had a Vespa outside with the Pixies written on it. And, uh, and I said, yeah, she says, bring me for a ride. And she gave me an earring. She says, here's an earring, I'll pay for the ride. And so I brought her um, out to the sea and we sat there on the rocks and we kissed it was very romantic I don't even think Bruce Springsteen could cook up a, <laughs> a narrative like that it, just, it, it seems so perfect it's a very specific memory that, that, <laughs> that song um, no I loved listening to that like, when was the last time you actually heard that track or anything from the first frames do album? you know I haven't listened to it in a long long time I did hear a snippet of it in a, about six months ago when my young neighbour came up to the house and he found a frame single and he didn't know how to work the record player so I, I sh- you know I showed him how to put it on mm. and we played the 45 the, initial, the original uh, Island Records uh, print yeah. 45 and it was at 
the record played at 33 and I remember thinking Jesus that band sounds good and it was like the heavy metal version yeah well it sounded like My Billy Valentine or something I was like God we should have released it at that speed what was it like sort of growing up what was the first sort of like music that you were sort of that was in your sort of house, really. Well, I mean, that's a very easy. It's a very, it's a very easy answer. The music that that was in my house was, of course, you know, traditional Irish music and the Dubliners, and you know, my mother, of course, loved. She loved the Beatles and she loved Dylan. And she loved Cohen. When I was five years old, I'll, I'll never forget it. My mother taught me "Bird on a Wire," and I remember sitting on the side of the sink, and she was bathing us, me and my brother, in the sink, in the kitchen, and she had one of those little record player uh, suitcase record players, and. He, she taught my brother the sound of silence and she taught me bird on a wire so and for me what what attracted me to that song was the was the lyric like a drunk in a midnight choir yeah I yeah. always loved that lyric uh, even though I didn't quite grasp what it meant um and so it was but it was but it was mostly you know my dad was my dad was one of these guys that he loved to drink and he worked hard and he loved to go out and but he would come home some nights uh, very late with friends you of know, course yeah and the hoolie was back in our house uh-huh. so the house would be full of people and of course those people would end up spending the night and sometimes they'd end up spending a few nights and occasionally they'd end up spending a few weeks <laughs> in our house and so we grew up we grew up listening to rebel songs and you know songs about the north and songs about England and songs about Ireland and you know people having to leave to go to Van Diemen's land and prison all this stuff and so I kind of grew up around this wealth of of uh passion and frustration uh, about England and about you know uh-huh. uh, about uh, well, I mean you're a product of your environment and when you've got lots of people like that 100% um, like singing those songs like I I, I almost feel jealous sometimes because we when I just moved from London but we used to go to the traditional sessions every mm. single Friday mm. um, in Stoke Newington and my friend Blondie knew all the traditional Irish nice. tracks like you know the ones with 16 verses I know and he'd, be, he'd yeah. stand up he'd be about seven pint, seven pints of stout on him and he'd stand up with arms behind the back yeah, yeah. and he'd just be going at it and I'm like waiting for the chorus going yeah. go on go on <laughs> <laughs> there's great romance in it yeah it's a, it's a kind it's the kind of romance you can get pulled deep into and you can get pulled way too far into it and you know these guys that we used to hang around our house we, we refer to them as our drunkles because because <laughs> they weren't family and, and they were definitely more familiar than strangers yeah Um. And so it is, you know, you're right. There is a, there is wonderful romance in this Irish notion of, you know, ten pints and a and a and a, and a long dirge. Uh, As we record this on a Friday, I'm starting to plan <laughs> plan, plan my night out in my head now. Like with that, and with people coming into your house at a young age and singing those songs, and you know, you being brought up at, at this like moment where your head's a sponge and you're taking so much in. Was it art and literature? with that as well or was it mainly music were, were people getting up and reciting poems was there books in your house there were poems there were books but the books were all by Catherine Cook mm-hmm. I mean the, there wasn't uh, I didn't grow up in a literate home I mean the, my mother loved to read but it wasn't they didn't go deep in that way yeah a uh, real working class family my dad liked detective novels you know there was never really a, a big uh, big sort of literary thing in my house it, and actually it was only when I my I started to really see a lot of my headmaster mm-hmm. when I was quite young because my headmaster I was constantly getting sent to him because I was a, I was one of these students who uh, I me- recently met a teacher of mine who taught me maths and she said I said to her and I met her at a funeral a few weeks ago yeah. and I said uh, she said I said tell me honestly what, what was I like as a student because I actually don't remember 
Yeah. She yeah. said, Glenn, you were you were horrible. <laughs> you were awful. And I was like, really? Is that truth? She said, yeah, you were, you were kind of lovable because you could see it wasn't coming from a bad place, but you were awful in school. I didn't like you. Uh, and I thought, wow, that's very, very honest. And it was only through those people. I mean, my headmaster was a very, very, he was a very good man. And he introduced me to books, uh, introduced me to kind of, you know, I had never really read for pleasure. I'd only read for school. And uh, he gave me some pointers and he was the guy that actually let me out of school. He, when I was 13, he said, look, you leave school. Do me a favor. Start. You want to do music. I know it's clear. Start at the bottom. Start on the street. And uh, and if in six months it doesn't work out, come back and I'll get you back into school. It sounds like you were acting up because the headmaster was your best friend and the only way to get the same was just by, you know <laughs> by throwing, throwing be, paper or acting, spot on, yeah. acting the wag, you know? Mm. Yeah, because like I, I did see that. Now, I, all I could think of it is like that would have been 13, 1983. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking, that's just that's illegal. <laughs> it was actually at the time. Yeah. Right? And I remember him saying. You can't saying, leave school to 15 or 16, can you? No, you can't leave school till 15 officially. But, you know, having said that, you know, uh, I grew up in Ballymona, a great place to grow up. <laughs> I have no problem with it at all. I loved it. Um, but my school, in my in my class, there was like, you know, 38 to 40 students at any one time. And That's a lot for a that's, classroom. That's a like. lot of, it's a lot of people in a class. And, and also the teachers were really working hard. And there was a kind of, it was once said, and I could probably get into trouble for saying this, but there was a kind of an attitude... Uh, of like these are let's get these kids ready for work I remember conversations about look we're not expecting you to get as far as you're leaving we would love you to get as far as your intercert Mm -hmm. you know get a trade you know there was a lot of talk in our school about trade get yourself a trade Uh, and I guess you know Ireland was a third world country at that time and you know we were trying to get get people to a point where they could go out and earn a living You, you see a lot of that when you watch documentaries about music in the late 70s early 80s in in Manchester Exactly. Like I, when you I watch the old sort of punk documentaries, you'll hear people talking about how they went to school, and the, it was almost like they were being farm fed into the factories, 100%. like almost like a conveyor belt from yeah. primary school, secondary school, factory life, coffin. Yeah. Do you know? One hundred percent. And I remember long, I remember teachers coming in and giving the students lectures about you know you got to get out there and you got to earn you got to take care of your parents you know you'll get married young you know all of this stuff there was no notions of creativity or being an artist or an actor or you know like throwing your hand at something that you know people would have thought you were mad absolutely and I haven't said that I've met many people from my school years later and lots of people doing very well for themselves so it's not it wasn't that we were being you know but but you know there was something about about Pink Floyd's The Wall film that did seem to uh, yeah. resonate with where we were at at the time. The Wall, yeah, The um, Wall, yeah. You grew up in Ballymun, and like being from like I'm an, I'm from Oma, um. So like everything that's force fed me about from down south is from the media. Yeah, and the, and the media give <clears throat> Ballymun a really hard touch about being somewhere where crime is uh, very bad, or drugs are very bad, and. I don't really get the idea that that's actually maybe it's not the case, but like they paint a sort of false picture of it. Well, Ballymun was the lowest on the list for most people who were looking for a home because Ballymun was 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 Ireland's first high rise flats and um, first tower blocks uh, right by the airport in Dublin. Right by it? the airport, yeah. it was quite far out. There was no great facilities. There yeah. was no real shopping centre. There uh-huh. was you know. There were there was two, only two bars that served many like you know I'm talking about tens of thousands. <laughs> you of don't people. want to get barred from there, do you? Exactly. <laughs> uh, it was a it was kind of a rough place in that 
people would a lot of my my memory of being young was that a lot of my friends I only had a lot of my friends for one year for maybe two years mm -hmm. a lot of my friends came to Ballymun they lived there for a bit and then they got on the housing list and they got a place in Crumlin or they got a place in Finglas sure uh, so Ballymun was really a place a transient sort of a, it was almost like a big train station mm -hmm. people would come and live there for a very short time a lot of people from the north I mean, one of my best friends when I was a kid was, was Brendan McGee. I'd love to. It would be amazing. That's my you, cousin's name. <laughs> is that your cousin's name? It would be amazing if you heard. There's a couple of Brendan McGee's in Ireland. Like. Does, he have a, does he have a brother called Sean? <laughs> no, I don't think okay, so. Okay, because Brendan, you know, and there was a lot of people would come down from Longkesh. Yeah. So a lot of northern families would, mm -hmm. would move into Ballymun. And they'd be there for maybe a year or two. And you'd see all of the artwork on the wall with the silver thread and the nails, you know. Yeah. And you'd see the Saoirse and you'd see that, you know, you'd know exactly who these people were. You know? The Northern Irish ones always sort of try harder, don't they? Well, it, when, well, when it comes to, be, to, be, to being a bit of a rebel, like, well, that that sense, they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll paint it everywhere. Exactly. Overcompensating. <laughs> that sense of identity. We're Irish too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're more Irish than you. We're suffering. Uh, but it's true, actually. I mean, there was a huge, uh, a huge number of Northern Irish. Irish people in Ballymun. So when you left school when you were 13 and you were busking away from what 13 to 20 before you started the band? Probably about 18. 18 yeah. right. Mm. What, what sort of songs were you playing out in the street? Like and were you out there like treating it like a job? Was it like 9 no, to 5? No no. I, I mean I went I did it every day but I didn't treat it as a job at all and I realised pretty quickly I mean I was my repertoire was all Dylan. I mean that, that, was, that was all I had. You know, Dylan. I was just singing Dylan, and then you have to be pretty good to play Dylan, though, like with the chords and stuff. That absolutely, he has. and and I was because I was a I was really a student of his. Uh, I, I was really I played the, I also played the deeper songs of his, and so in a way, I didn't make as much money. And I remember someone came along one day and they played a Van the Man song, and I was like, Jesus, man, you can make some money playing Van. <laughs> Van had that thing, yeah. like you know, his songs are really. They inc they're inclusive and you can belt them out. And yeah. Whereas I was playing sort of deeper, you know, it's all right, my money bleeding or, you know, I was going into the gates of Eden and, you know. You're playing the lesser known Bob Dylan. I was because they were the songs I loved. It yeah. wasn't because I, I was trying to be oblique. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when Van and then Neil Young and, and then I discovered and then the Waterboys released This Is The Sea and that was, a, that was a real game changer for me and a lot of my friends. It's the first time I remember ever sitting down and learning a whole album. Like with From the start to finish, yeah, we learned the whole thing. I did the same thing at university. I do. I wasn't going out. I wasn't drinking with everybody in first yeah. year. I had a girlfriend at that stage back home, and I just decided I wasn't going to go out. And I was sitting in, yeah. and uh, I was just like. I learned the whole of the Stone Roses two albums nice. on bass from no, start nice. to finish. <laughs> nice. What a great exercise! Yeah, exactly, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. And 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 then a friend of mine introduced me to a band, REM, and and it was like. Who are these guys? Oh, they're American. They're from Georgia. Amazing band. And then, of course, that was a whole new uh, element that came into the music. Uh, and then, of course, later on was bands like the Pixies and stuff. And but, but at the at the at the at the basis of all of that was the Dubliners, was yeah. the Clancy Brothers, mm -hmm. you know, the Bothy Band and Planksty and all of these bands that just they're the wellspring of of everything that came later. There was um, a statue unveiled of Luke Kelly. Uh, very recently, um, from the date that we recorded this now, mm -hmm. and um, you you played at the unveiling of it. I think Damien Dempsey played as Myself well. And Damien, what was yeah, that like? And John Sheehan. It was a really, it was an incredible moment for me. It was one of those life moments where I where I looked around me and I thought, wow, because this guy is, you know, he is the great bard. He is mm -hmm. the he is the, and it's really wonderful that Ireland is finally giving him the recognition that he very much deserves. He was a great socialist. He was a great thinker. 
the Dubliners, of course, had a lot of weight, but the, Dub the Dubliners, you know, went into the world and they, you know, they'd never really cracked America. And so they were kind of always considered more of a home band, even though they did amazingly well in Europe. Um, it was a real honor for me to sing. And I was singing to his to Luke's family and uh, his sister and actually his sister, who I knew years ago anyway, from a different uh, from a different moment in my life. But just this incredible thing to be playing for his family and to be playing, you know, the the president, President Higgins was there. And I, mean, I saw know, him. He was like slapping his knee yeah, along to it. He was absolutely loving it. And I'm so happy he's our president. He's just a right. You man. look at you look around the world and you look at the other presidents yes. and this, that and the other. And how how blessed are you to have Michael I, I love Ma him. Michael D. Higgins. I love him. <laughs> Absolutely love him. And you know, his parents fought on both sides of the Irish Civil War and we're just coming into a very difficult time for the for the Irish in terms of reflecting back on, you know, because you had 1916 and you had all of what that was about and what it meant and, you know, the blood sacrifice and all the rest. But the Civil War is a horrible part of our history. It's a sad and deep and strange and we haven't never investigated it. Yeah, yeah. We've never spoken about it. It's all there to be discovered. And Michael D, both his parents were fought, fighting on both sides of that. So I think he's the right president at this if, time. If there is dialogue to be had, that he's the right man to uh, to, to, to sit at the centre of it. And There's uh, always been a dark underbelly to stuff that goes on in Ireland with the, the Magdalene Laundries and oh the, my goodness. even with the situation with immigration in Ireland at the minute. It's a, it's a very, very dark It's horrendous. Moment. It's horrendous. You know, also the kind of ideological uh, fixation by our um, government, you know, the Fine Gael, uh, um, the way they're the way they're dealing with with families being um, thrown out of their homes is is it's a, it's 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 really shocking to see a government sort of take the attitude that this is just collateral damage, you know, for us for an economy that's doing well. They're all about the figures. They're they're not interested mm. in the lives. And so does a, I find as a. If I find, and of course, these people are doing their best. I, I'm, I'm not here just throwing stones for no reason. People mm -hmm. do their best, but there's an ideological problem, and and it's very, very difficult to see it and to witness it, and uh, to see the lack of empathy and the lack of of compassion uh, from the highest offices in the land. And that's why, again, I'm grateful for Michael D. Higgins. At least he's in in office, and he's a very he's a strong character, and he's got he's a man who actually thinks, and he's got a heart. And I'm not saying that the, that the others don't, but there's a there's a there's a huge uh, there's something not right in there's there. There's a void. Yeah. Yeah. So 1990. What is the state of Irish music like around that stage? It's a very good question because I actually don't know. <laughs> uh, I joined a band without having any contact with Irish music other than the Irish music of my childhood. Yeah. So I appeared into a kind of... You a, weren't palling about with Bono. You weren't running no, about with Sinead O'Connor. No. No. Didn't, no, no that. Those guys were all kind of heroic and they had gone off in the world and made their way, but it wasn't their records I grew up with. And so I guess when I came into... When my band, The Frames, came into our own... Our peers would have been like Carlos Flowers would have been sort of bit before us. Our peers would have been people like an emotional fish, uh, the Pale, which were a great band, uh, kind of almost like klezmer rock, Engine Alley, which were a powerful band for, from Kilkenny, you know. And then you had people, you know. Gosh, it, anyway, it was a very broad scene. It was a, it was a very interesting time. I didn't know anything. Our house. I didn't really know anything. Uh, um, my Billy Valentine had gone to London and made Loveless. Um, but I didn't really know much about what was going on. And I never really cared. It, was, yeah, it yeah. wasn't really something I was that worried about. 
Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What, what really was interesting to me was getting to, getting to America. I never, even, I never even had that thing, to be honest, of getting to London. Even though I signed with Chris Blackwell at Island Records. I never had that wish to get to London or to break yeah. England, you know. I was just like, let's get to the States where we can, you know. I, I guess I wanted That's to That's in your DNA though, isn't well, it? Only because my favorite <laughs> artists, I, even though I thought they were from America, it turns out most of them were from Canada. But, <laughs> uh, but the artists that I, that I gravitated towards were, Amer- was, were from that part of the yeah. world. So how did you go about getting the, the frames together? Was it, was it like friends? Was it, uh, how'd it go? It was, I made a demo tape of some songs uh, in 1988 and Marina Guinness uh, who was part of the Guinness family uh, it was, a, was, a, was a friend who used to come and support me when I was busking give me a few quid she invited me to her house where I met Van Morrison and I met Ronnie Wood and, and uh, Marianne Faithful and was this some sort, some sort of like Guinness party? It was just like, no. I, it was just an afternoon. She no? said, "Come out. I've got some friends at the house, and I'd really like, you, like them to hear your music." And and it was great. Stuart Copeland. Sorry, I forgot. I forgot him there. He he was there also. And and I remember there was a kind of a you know very generous thing to do to take a, a young busker to put their cassette in. That the really is like I don't think I've heard much of that before. Well, that's very much Marina's character. Marina yeah. is a very she's a wonderful, wonderful person. And the Guinness family historically have always always been very supportive of the arts mm-hmm. and so we sat down in the house and it was, it, she lives in the countryside uh, uh, and we listened to the tape and I remember Marianne Faithful uh, saying we should call Chris and we should let you know and uh, I spoke to Chris Blackwell on the phone that evening and uh, and he heard my tape and a week later he said you want to come to London I'll have a chat and I came to London and met met with Chris and uh I basically that was the beginning of me signing I signed my first record contract and I was given some money mm-hmm. I think I was given 15,000 pounds at the time which was a huge amount yeah, of money yeah it's a lot of money yeah and I went to some busker friends uh, and I said do you want to play bass in my band or do you want to play drums or mm-hmm. do you want to play guitar and I put the frames together out of people that I met within a sort of a week or so but people that I'd known yeah uh, and, uh, and they're buskers as well which means they're going to be sort of robust on tour you know they're, they're, exactly. they're going to know their shit exactly and and so that band lasted 
that lineup lasted about three years. Uh, and then, of course, people began to, you know, John Carney, who, who made Once mm. many, many years later, he left the band to pursue, you know, he wanted to make films. And Dave Odlin left the band to record. And it's funny, I still have contact with all these people and they're still in my day-to-day life, but but they, they left the frames pretty early on. It, it, it sounds like... Um it, it wasn't like one of those like you know like all those heavy metal bands once you're out of the band that guy's a fucking asshole <laughs> fuck that guy yeah. <laughs> it all seems fairly uh, pleasant well we were mates you know so there was yeah. no and you know if if for instance when John decided he wanted to leave and make films of course you're not going to I mean it, I, I was I was I, I was pissed because I, I didn't have a bass player in my band but I was also really happy for him I mean you have to be <laughs> had somebody do the music videos as well right exactly <laughs> um, so what was the ambition when the frame sort of like uh, started out and why, 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 why did you not call yourself Glenn Hansard and just have the rest of the guys as session musicians seeing as it was you that got signed at the start you know what you're right there and it may have it may have it may have saved a little time or, and it, may, it would have made things more maybe more honest or whatever because I was signed there's a romance of, about being in a band as well though isn't well, it well that's what I wanted and I was a big fan of like the Waterboys and the Pixies and, and I wanted to be in a band uh but now looking back on it, I kind of, it really was a singer and, a, and his friends. I mean, th- th- don't get me wrong, the frames contributed so much and more and more through the years. I mean, by the time we got to For the Birds, I was definitely a member, of, you know, yeah. a member of a band as opposed to a guy coming in with songs. Um, and th- the band very much shaped the, that sound. But uh, yeah, it would have, it, w- it was on paper, Glenn Hansard in the frames. Yeah. Um, um, but, 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 uh, as time went on, I just became more honest with that. And now I'm at a point where it's like, what's wonderful about just making records under my own name is that I can play music with whoever I want and I can hire people. And yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no question of like, so what about this idea? It's just like, well, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the, the Frames lads used to call me customs. You know, it's like everything has to get through customs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Any ideas. But I, I think like, and I've learned this and some of my friends have learned this from being in groups and collectives and, mm. and the like, that sometimes if there's a strong leader in the group, then sometimes it's better just to like sort of let them do their thing and if you've got your project you go do your thing exactly do you know what I mean yeah. like yeah I couldn't imagine you playing with say on Colin McInimra's like latest album yeah. he'd be like going fuck off Glenn this is mine absolutely <laughs> yeah 100% <laughs> um, was, it, was, it, was the ambition for the band to be the biggest band in the world were you, one, were you, were you one of those bands because like you Not know nine, 9 out of 10 bands will start and they'll be like we're going to be bigger than Jesus <laughs> you know, it's funny. Yeah, I, I I can honestly respond to that by saying I never felt like being the biggest band in the world or anything remotely like it was was in on my radar. I did like the idea of being kind of part of the firmament of music. I liked the idea of being going out there and making music and being one of the bands that on the road. And I always liked the idea. I always liked the company of other bands, and I always liked the conversation about music. But uh, being the biggest, fast and the, and the loudest was not really... You see, you two threw such a big shadow in a funny kind of a way. And then also Bob Dylan is another... He's just on a different level to to most anyone I've ever heard that in a way there was no question of trying to better those guys. Yeah, just, do your thing. Just do your thing. And, yeah. You know, the, 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 the giants, the mountains of music already existed. It, the you released that album nineteen ninety one mm-hmm. uh, the track that we heard off it earlier, um, and then the commitments came around. Yeah, so pretty much straight away. And the first thing that uh, if you haven't seen the commitments, number one, what are you doing with your life? Why have you not seen that? <laughs> there's four, there's, look, my um, my mum's partner, my stepdad, 
got four copies of it one Christmas for was it four wow. three copies on DVD one wow. Christmas by three three of us that's amazing because <laughs> we, we were just like it must be in a reissue or something like that yeah. and we were like oh he loved that and then we all sat down and watched it and we had two extra ones and we had to give out it's it's one of those things that it it has been in every Irish household and it's been and beyond and mm. the rest. It's a powerful, but, a powerful memory. But you were releasing music around about the same time, so people must have got you confused because more people would have seen you in the commitments and would have heard your your demo album or sorry your debut album. Yeah. So that yeah. must have been a real head fuck. It was. It was. And I remember coming to England and doing interviews, and everyone calling me outspan, and and I remember just sort of being like, like wow, like. I, that's that's not who I am. That's not what I do. I'm a musician, and you know my experience in the commitments was such an amazing, you know, the friendships I made with the with the rest of the cast and stuff was just a really a, an incredible thing. And also to learn that music, that was a huge part of my education was to 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 really get my head around those songs mm. because they're so they're such deep songs and such great songs. I have a kind of a strange memory, one memory that's kind of the fly in the ointment, if you like, and that was. I remember Alan Parker at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of the shooting said, "If you need to take some time off, we need two weeks' notice because it's a big, you know, there's a lot of people involved." In yeah. There. And I had a concert, one of my first concerts. I think probably was my first, was my second gig with the Frames. I remember now. Yeah. And it was in the Purty Loft, which was in Dublin, which was just on the outskirts of Dublin. And I remember saying, "Can I? Uh, is it possible?" And I had to give a you had to give written uh, you had to get give a written explanation. Get your mum to sign it, exactly kind of thing. <laughs> and I did, you know. And and I asked, could I have one night off? I remember it was the fifteenth of September, and they gave me the night off. I went and I played my gig. All the cast and crew came to the came to the uh, concert, which was great, and it was a really good gig for the band. And I was so happy. And afterwards. Uh, Afterwards, I remember when the film, when the right when the filming stopped, I remember Alan Parker pulling me aside in a corridor of uh, of his hotel. He said, "Come here, come here. I want to, I want to say something." And he said, "You know, on every film I make, there's one cunt. I didn't think it would be you." <laughs> I remember thinking, "What? Why?" And 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 he used that word, and I was like, "Why? Why? Why would this man say this to me?" I'm, yeah, you know, I'm. I did nothing wrong. Uh-huh. You know, I did exactly what I was asked. I, I had a great time doing it. And to be honest with you, that kind of spoiled it for me. I, so, I, I couldn't really go forward with a feeling that, that this guy had been, you know, because, you know, we all want to. Is that just because you took the cast down for, for one night? He never explained to me what it was, but I assume it was that. Wow. Yeah. And so in a way. That, 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 that would wreck it for you, really, wouldn't it? It kind of did, to be honest. And, and so afterwards, I remember when I was touring with my first album and people were saying, Alan Parker, blah, blah. And actually, it's funny. At the time, I was saying, oh, it was so amazing to work with him, blah, blah, blah. But actually inside, I was like, fuck this guy, you know. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Was, it wasn't a very cool thing to. Uh, no, definitely not. Especially to when, you, especially when the, you know, you're talking to, you know, you're in your 40s and you're saying it to some kid who's in his 20, you know, early 20s. It's not cool. No, no, big, big time. So, like, uh, it kind of leaves it with a bad taste in, in your mouth. But like, after after the commitments, um, you you release so much music, yeah. like there there's singles and um, albums, EPs. The lot I actually chronologically went through everything, oh, wow. um, this morning, and I think there was only one year 
that you didn't release anything and oh. I think it was the year 2000 maybe <laughs> up, up until um, 2006 you obviously got hit with the millennium bug right <laughs> uh, we got the tinfoil helmet on we're like waiting for the the, the meltdown to yeah, happen on yeah. the takeover but you, you, it felt like a really purple patch for for you writing music and, and to be honest like you're always writing music from yeah one is always writing music when one releases music or anything like that it's kind of just down it's kind of arbitrary really yeah uh, I I feel like I feel like I'm in an interesting spot now where I where I just made this record and went in and and I really just I met with a bunch of great musicians and just let everything flow and and I did I did exactly the opposite of what I might have done in, in the early frames I didn't make I didn't say yes or no to anything I just allowed all the music to come and then I com- com- compiled what I liked at the end um, so there is a kind of a certain letting go that one one reaches. I certainly it took me a long time to get there, where where you trust the people around you and you just let, you, you know you allow the sound of what is. And so yeah, I you know there there, there has been there, but there were long periods where I didn't write either, uh, also. And so that so it's it's good to know that there are there are records out there. And who knows who knows what pattern we leave behind? You know, yeah. every time you make a record, you're just making a record. And somehow in the middle of all that, there is an arc. Yeah, the arc of your career. And who gets to who gets to decide what that is? It's so, not you. No, certainly it's the, not. It's You're the too... fans and everybody who exactly. sort of talks and hypothesizes about it. Mm. It, it. It's it's kind of strange that. Well, like, how do you how do you feel about the record? It's like as we record this in February, it'll be coming out in April. It's yeah. called um, the the Wild Willing. Yeah, this Wild Willing. It's a it's a record that I'm I'm very 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 happy with. I went to Paris and I I got a writer's. Uh, I, I got a kind of a. I was you know granted a. A month in a, in a small room uh, in in the middle of Paris to write, and I took it. I was I've never Amazing. done anything like that, yeah. like an artist's uh, a grant, if you like. Her, so I went and I and I wrote between nine a.m. and eleven eleven a.m. every morning, and then I went for a walk and took my lunch, and then tried to get back between three and five. Didn't always succeed in that, <laughs> but uh, I really treated the time as a kind of a a, a time of discipline. I mm. decided I was going to really try to write some lyrics and write some songs, or maybe even write some stories. And uh, each day, just the act of writing, the act of writing anything, even if it was just thoughts, even if it was just diary entry, really opened me up. And I found myself in a place where these ideas and these songs were coming and I was able to form them and, and really interrogate the lyric and really look at what it was. And I was meeting with musicians. I met these uh, Iranian brothers, Koshervesh brothers, uh, Mani, Nima and Puya. And I asked them to come to the studio and then I, I Dunk Murphy, who, who operates as Sunken Foal, who's an amazing electronic artist in Ireland, uh, him and my friend DC, uh, um, who are hip hop guys and are kind of more experimental dance. Yeah. I asked them to come in and that clash of the Persian melodic line with, you know, I spoke to Dave and Dunk and said, I really what, what I would really love you to do is come in and really disrupt my music. I'd love you to come in and just drive through the middle of it and see what we get. And I feel like the results were quite successful in that it, it's, you know, it's still folk music. It's in a way, it's still it's still pop music, if you like. It's real simple. It's simple songs. But there's an there's elements to them that I think are hanging together in a very interesting way. And I'm very happy with what the result was. And you see, you talk about like working with um, Iranian musicians. Like, is world music? Uh, I hate that word. Sure, uh, but it's uh, it conjures it, an awful image. Yeah. It is. It is. It's an awful word. Rain but, sticks but, and but it's very. It's just very simplistic and very yeah, to sure. the point. But like, do do you look at other cultures for influence? It sounds like you've kind of got the 
the Irish influence on, on lockdown. Well, the Irish influence actually, in a way, opens you up to every other influence because the Irish influence, if you think about Irish traditional music and you listen to the melodic line, I mean, it's North African. You know, the Bauron, the melodic, the, the, the melodies. Mm. And in a, in a funny kind of a way, that Arabic influence has always been there in traditional Irish and English music. And so it seems, it doesn't seem like a huge stretch that a Persian instrument might come in and it, it, there's actually a, there's a lot of it rhymes there's a lot of familiarity there mm. uh, a few notes that don't necessarily seem to work in the same way but they're but Jesus it's uh, I quite like that sometimes so when, when you hear like a real sort of dissonant note coming in yeah. you're like going because <gasps> you're just waiting for the resolve so you can breathe out again 100% <laughs> um, so yeah, we're, we're recording this in, in London recording this in the 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 basement in uh, in a studio in Soho. Now, one thing that sort of Soho is very f- famous for, well, like Oxford Circus is very famous for, really, is um, Hare Krishna. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, like, when I came here to London seven years ago, almost seven years yeah. ago, I remember coming out to do my first show at uh, Radio 1, like came out of Oxford Circus, yeah, and, yeah. and I was greeted by about... Um, twenty people dressed in orange, um, yeah. like playing drums and percussion, and I don't think I, I'd only been to London with my, like I think my dad once before and my, yeah. mate, my mate once before, and we got pissed and went to see Blur. Yeah. And I was like, "Is this what London's like all the time? <laughs> <laughs> this is crazy." What but year was that? That would have been in two thousand and eleven. Okay, wow, wow. You know, I joined the Harry Krishnas when I was a kid, mm. so I know I was probably in that gang at some point. About what age? I've done the Kirtan. Uh, the, that's what that is, you know, yeah. when people go out in the street and they do that thing. It's called the kirtan. Uh, I would have been, gosh, maybe 17, 18, around that age. I joined just for a little bit. Yeah. I went in, I was like, you know what, this is amazing. And I remember my friend Mick Christopher, who's another musician, he was also a Hare Krishna. Yeah. And he was working in the Soho, in the, you know, in what's it called, Govindas, uh-huh. here in the Soho. And uh, I remember coming into him a lot and visiting London. And I went to stay at the George Harrison mansion. Uh, and there was a great, very charismatic uh, Krishna um, kind of devotee, one of the original devotees called Prabhupada, uh, not Prabhupada, um, Tribhuvanath, who would have been one of the students of Prabhupada. Mm-hmm. Who was a, so it's funny, for, for me, London is very much about the Krishnas also. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. But yeah, I went in, I had a, I had a look, it was wonderful. I, I, uh, I, I enjoyed it and then, I, and then I, 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 it wasn't for me anymore. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you came in, tried it. Uh, yeah. But th- does it leave a lasting impact? What, what, what is like, if somebody is listening to this and they've never heard of it before, like how do, you, how do you sum it up to somebody? A Krishna's? Yeah. Well, I think when we're young, we all are looking, we're all looking to connect with something. We're all looking to connect with something bigger than ourselves, maybe, you know, and sometimes that's the arts and for me it was the arts. Mm-hmm. But also I think there's a kind of a spiritual, uh, for me there was a spiritual lacking, if you like. And I was definitely wasn't finding it in Christianity and in, in Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was kind of attracted, to, you know, because when, when I was a street musician, the Krishnas used to leave, they'd leave their books beside me and I'd yeah. mind the books. And then sometimes they'd leave the Golubjamans and the, the, they used to give these desserts out. And so we, <laughs> they would end up feeding us. And then sometimes we'd end up going back down. That's kind of how I got into it. You got bribed into it. Well, I kind of got bribed into it. got food. Well, I, I got food. And, but that's really it. That's, to be honest, I mean, any religion that sort of eats, dances and sings its way to God sort of seems like a pretty good good one to me. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, you know, you go in. When I went in, I, I definitely felt the... Uh, I felt the restriction and I felt that it was a, a, a very, you know, a very ordered. And I and a part of me really wanted the order because there was very little order in my day to day. Yeah, of course. And so I really enjoyed the whole 
you know, getting up at five in the morning and praying and, you know, but it, it didn't last long. I, I wasn't, it wasn't for me. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, I, I mean, if you had kept on down the sort of the, the Catholicism route, mm-hmm. you probably would have ended up a Benedictine monk doing the same sort of, well, it seems a bit, little bit less crack, but the same sort of sort of order. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, I, wouldn't be good for your music career having to take a vow of silence. Though. Absolutely, and hundred, you know, and, and at the risk of sounding controversial, it, I always related more to Protestantism. Anyway, I was always much more on that. You know, I kind of agree with that aspect. You know, Aye. why not question it? Why not get in and figure out what it's all about? <laughs> You know, so in a way, the, I mean, I, what I love that must about, have been a popular view oh, right, around, around your house. You wouldn't have said that too much about that. <laughs> um, um, but uh, no, I always just kind of, you know, but my name is Hansard, you know, and uh, Hansard is a Huguenot name. And the Huguenots went to northern England and they were living, from what I know, they were living on the borderlands. And then Sir Richard Hansard was granted la- the lands of Lifford. Uh-huh. So I think my family are directly related from the north you know from Lifford which originally would have been English so it's well, you know we're all it's just a huge melting pot and it always has been if I go through your IMDB mm-hmm. um, it looks like you're the most selective actor of all time <laughs> and it looks like you're one of the luckiest too because you've like <laughs> you've landed on two projects that are, that feel seminal from when they were made like the commitments is a seminal 1990s music movie yeah. and once is and I'm not using the word lightly, like so yeah. a seminal sort of mid two thousands music movie. Well, thank you. And that I think what from that distance from nineteen ninety to two thousand and six, what's that? Sixteen years, uh-huh. and then sixteen years on, that would be, uh, God, no, wouldn't it? <laughs> right, it would be around so, so, now. So yeah, you're yeah. Ju- like you're due. Yeah. You're due another seminal uh, movie, another another a seminal music movie. Another, you know, I have been offered parts in in films, and and, and I don't, both of those films I fell into by accident, and I'm very happy. And I don't think the films were great due to my acting, so I don't I don't take any sense of responsibility on that. But I'm very fortunate in that I was involved in two films that did have a bit of a life. You know, that they they lived on a bit. Is there anything that you've turned down? Um, and most people have been like, Jesus, Glenn, why the flip did you turn that down? There was one that I turned down that in a way I'd love to have done it. But then when I saw the film, I wasn't I wasn't so impressed. And it was the role of Rorschach in X-Men. <laughs> what? Yeah, I was offered that role. You uh, were going to be in a Marvel? I know. Yeah. I was almost. In, and just because I fit the bill. And it's the same with the commitments. You know, the, re- the reason I got that role was because, I, you know, someone approached me and said, you've got red hair, you're from the north side, you play guitar. <laughs> we're looking for someone who looks just like you. Have you ever acted? No. Do you want to do an audition? Why not? You know, so in a way, it came to me in a way that was very, very easy. And I'm very happy for it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I don't want to sound uh, disingenuous, but I, I really loved it. But it was the same at once. You know, Killian Murphy was to play the guy and, and he was playing the guy. And I was delighted because I love Killian. Uh, and then Killian, I think, did Sunshine uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so he couldn't do once. And so John, in a desperate sort of bid to get the film made said you should do it well you were writing the songs for it I was time, writing the songs it? and yeah. I was over the moon about that because it was a great mm. gig for me to get it's, it's crazy how these things work out isn't it on, on a very very much smaller scale there was a movie shot about punk music in Northern Ireland called Good Vibrations mm. and I, um, I got cast in that as one of the bass players in the band oh, wonderful. so they wouldn't like you know Terry yeah, well, yeah Ter- Terry Hooley the story yeah. of Terry Hooley and, and punk music in Northern Ireland and the Troubles and uh, I played an, a, I was the bass player in uh, Rudy and the only 
sort of cast me because I was a, a lot thinner at that stage and lanky and could hold the bass and could play it. You're still thin. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but actually, it's funny you should say that because we we were all on the dole at the time, so we were getting 45 quid a week. Right. And, uh, I remember we, we, well. Yeah, yeah. And none of us really sort of like knew what it was like to have sort of nice food. So like like all the time, unless you went home to your ma's. But when we were all on the set, there was a lovely catering, cheese boards, desserts, the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, yeah. That you can notice in the film, if you're keen enough, I, that everybody puts on weight in certain right. scenes. Where, like, I think everybody was a stone and a half. Right. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, because we were yeah. like, fuck, I don't know when this food's going to stop. So yeah. it's just like, you know, pack yeah, it up and save it, save it for winter. I remember it with the commitments. There was donuts and, and cheese and you constantly available and I remember just eating constantly on that film because <laughs> there's so many hours where you're doing nothing and you're just waiting it's around. actually really boring I, 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 like <laughs> you know like the the, the the whole idea of it was was amazing yeah and like like doing it when you did your one 30 minutes yeah for, and 12 14 hours of waiting about sure <laughs> totally it, it kind of like it broke down the wall the fourth wall for me a little bit too much um we've got a shared love in a band called the lost brothers ah lovely um, uh, they're they're from my my parts of the world. Yeah, uh, Mark great. Mark is uh, from Oma, and I know that, that they have supported you quite a lot, and yeah. and, and you've supported and you've supported them quite a lot That's as well. Right. And I almost wanted to sort of use this moment to, for anybody who's listening to the podcast to, to go and listen to their music because they're building a really good audience in Ireland at the moment, and and they're start like they're building a decent audience in America as well. But I feel like they're. Their music is such good soul food. It needs to be in every household. They're deep men, I'm, and I've and I have I I've had this fantasy. I'd love to make a video with them, because for me they kind of there's echoes of like the Leuven Brothers in what they do, and you know I would love to make a video for them in Ace Cafe here in London, <laughs> yeah. you know the biker cafe yeah. with those two boys playing and all the bikers sitting. I just have this. I'd love to make that video. So if any video directors are out there, listen to the Lost Brothers and go make that video for them because I probably don't have time. To do it. <laughs> but uh, their their music has this really haunting, deep sort of fifties feel. But then again, it's very modern. Maybe you'll play them on the. Maybe you'll play them now. Um, uh, but they're a wonderful, wonderful band. Yeah, and the way they sing together is really compelling, and their writing is really compelling. Yeah, uh, absolutely, absolute amazing band. So, what does the rest of uh, two thousand and nineteen hold? Then, are you going to get out on the the road with this record? Are you going to yeah, tear the yeah. balls off it, as they say? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm going to. Uh, yeah, it takes me right through. I go back to the states, do a little bit there. Uh, the tough thing about the touring this year for me so far is I've never been so aware of visa issues than I am now. Oh, no, yeah, with um, Donald because, Trump and Well, with Trump, Brexit of course, and, 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 and the Italians. And, you know, I'm trying to get the Iranian uh, musicians that I played with, I'm trying to get them on the road with me. And man, it's difficult. Yeah. You know, Ireland, it's really hard to get them into Ireland. It took two years to get a visa for me to get them into Ireland. And I got them in to play a gig at Christmas and the audience loved it and they loved it. They yeah. had a great time. But now, in order to get them back in for April, it's just nigh on impossible. You don't think you don't think that you have the the, the exact same problem with Ireland, but like I mean, without going deep into the story or naming names, like yeah. I, I've I've seen a friend of mine whose missus isn't from is from like the other part of the world, yeah. And I'll not go into the story because it's it's just too, but it's difficult. It's too deep, but it's really fucking difficult. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It's it. We're and we're we're moving into a world that seems to be really closing its doors rather than. Rather than the sort of compassion and, and empathy kind of growing, it seems to be closing down, and it's a strange time we're in. But it's really it's a time that's really important for us all to 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 speak out, not to speak up and speak against, but to speak about who we are 
it's not about uh, going against anybody. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's very interesting to 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 to, to see um, that there are certain countries I can bring my band, and there are certain countries I can't. It's crazy. Uh, like you were sort of touching on the protest song. Who are your favorite protest singers? Oh gosh, well Woody Guthrie would be number one, of course. What what does it say inside of his guitar? This machine kills fascists. Kills fascists Love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a wonderful man. But but I find that the the, pro, the great protest singers are just people who sing about humanity. Mm-hmm. Because in fact, you know, the more you sing about the but the the condition of of living in the day to day, the more you, the more you speak to it politically. Also, I've been thinking about this quite a lot, like with just just punk punk music and and music in general. And I find that it's when the music or the lyrics touch upon not the overarching topic, but the smaller little bit in between it. Yeah. So, like, say it wouldn't be poverty. Like mm-hmm. you know, somebody started writing a song about how fucked up everything is, and you yeah. know, how little you, you get money you get from the government and benefits yeah. and all the rest. But it's actually like the sort of Ken Loach approach when you've got the heart of somebody and you can see it there yeah. instead of going, "Isn't everything shit?" Yeah. I always think that for songwriters, they should delve deeper into the character I and why it, why it means that instead of going, "Well, everything's fucked." Yeah, and someone like Ken Loach gets to still make the films he makes because he's had a long, long history of making that film. Mm-hmm. He, he's made that film a lot and it's a wonderful wonderful film and the likes of him and Mike Lee I'm, I'm you know be a huge fan I just took a picture actually of the Lida the stores the, the, the storefront of Lida where it's the scene in Naked where uh, where you Maggie Maggie you know where um, <laughs> yeah. Johnny meets uh, I can't remember the guy's name in the film but uh, so no I I agree with you that nowadays when you when you try to sing a political song it's just shot down by everybody. Like, come on, like emotional porn. You know, it's just like stop being, stop trying to, stop trying to to connect with the people. <laughs> you know, we're living in an age where any any sort of, not any, but we're living in an age where sincere sincerity is seen as a weakness. Yeah, where uh, where naivety is seen as a weakness. You know, if you listen Everything, to everything's r- very black and white. Yeah, listen to the early, listen to early rock and roll, and listen to the naivety that's in that, and listen to the power it had. Um, does it? Does something? I really feel like we really need to, really need to reconnect with things like uh, naivety. And you know, I was involved in a, I was involved in an action a couple of years ago, where we took over a, an Irish, an empty, an empty office block in Dublin and turned it into a homeless shelter for you know a, f- a month uh that's how that's how short we got out of it because and what really struck me was how cynical everybody was you know about about the act and also in and and, and and someone like someone like me becomes an easy target in that because they go well look you're just doing it to you know to hire your profile to sell records and in a funny kind of way they have you dead to rights when they say something like that even though i'm mm. not that i know i'm not doing it for that reason but i can see the i can totally see where that cynical yeah that uh, narrative's coming out that of, narrative comes yeah. out of and i totally you know i can i could accuse someone else of it but you know there, there sometimes regardless of what people are going to say and regardless of how people are going to react sometimes it's better to do it and suffer the the cynicism that, yeah, com- exactly. that comes out of it do you know what i mean it's what it, it's what it's not just what you get out of it, it's what the people that you're doing yeah, get out of it. Exactly. So it doesn't really matter if it comes back on you, does it? Exactly. And you know I'd it, say you've got thick enough skin by now, like Well absolutely. And you know, and, and I've heard I've heard you know, I've heard people who would know this world much better than I do and I've heard them say, you know, honestly, you're fucked if you do, you're fucked if you don't. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so you might as well do. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, Glenn, thank you so much for uh taking the time to chat yeah. to me today. I've really enjoyed it and uh 
We will t- get you get you your. Uh, ba- that's not the battered old guitar that we were talking no, about. No, I borrowed this. This is a bar- borrowed guitar from Gibson. They're very kind to have given it to me. Uh, in Paris, they heard about my uh, radio sessions, and I got a phone call, and they said, "If you need to borrow a guitar, we'll gladly give you one." So I'm delighted. Oh, happy happy days! And yeah. now you're going to p- perform for for two hour session for us, <laughs> right? <laughs> right now, uh, Glenn. Thank you very much. Thank you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.